0: This is Megan, and welcome to the Murphy's Law episode of Western Reaches. (laughs) This is Western Reaches number four, which we have attempted to record several times. So we apologize for the delay. We were supposed to record last week, um, and we had some audio trouble. Um, We were supposed to record yesterday, and I was sick. We were supposed to record today, and we're actually recording today, hopefully. (laughs) <laughs> I'm kind of
1: impressed that we're finally here.
0: Yes, we. So the universe has conspired to try to stop us, but we will persevere. Um, I think we have all our technology in order now. So, welcome to Western Reaches, uh, Saf. How are you doing?
1: Oh God, um, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> ignoring that, ignoring me freaking out for a second. There, yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, it's been, it's been a kind of a week that's. Felt very long, but it's also been really good.
0: Yeah, that's that's about the same. It's been um, it's been a big week, and that's pretty much what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to do our usual thank you to Tashi Station for hosting us here, and we're going to go straight into what we've been reading this week. Um, I'm going to take command of most of this, I think, um, because I've been reading all the things and. I've been reading mostly Catherine Valenti, which is probably what you're going to hear from me, like, for, like, three weeks. Because I am trying to read, like, everything she's done. And I've finished um, The Melancholy of Mecca Girl, which is a collection of stories about um, Japan. So she lived in Japan. It's actually, interestingly, autobiographical. Um, She lived in Japan um, for... A little while and because her husband is in the military and she writes these stories a lot about Japanese mythology with a very uh, with a lot of awareness that she is a western person coming to another country and sort of seeing it through her own lens and, and she doesn't she's aware that she doesn't own it but she interprets it and they're really well written stories I think they're really pretty
1: That's um good to hear that you know, she recognizes that it's not her culture or something. Because a lot of people um have a habit of taking, you know, like Asian, especially Japanese, like culture things, and then just making it their own or acting like they own it. So hearing that, you know, she is a bit more respectful of that is really good.
0: Absolutely. And there's discussion that could be had of that too. Like I read the introduction is a Japanese writer talking about Catherine Valenti's book and saying basically almost – absolving her isn't the right word, but almost saying like this rang true to him and this is a Western person writing about Japan and sort of we're all aware of that. And she, I think, she does this in a lot of her books. She wrote about Russian folklore because her husband's family was from Russia. She wrote about Japan because she was she lived there for some time and it had a big impact on her. So she takes a little bit from lots of of cultures and, you know, there's part of me is like, I should really in addition to this, you know, find read work by Japanese authors in a similar vein. It exists, but it was nice to know that she um, acknowledged that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And sometimes it's hard to find that stuff when you live in a western culture like us, like it's not really on display anywhere, so you've got to actually search for it. Um but it's good to kind of be introduced to it through this in a way for people like us, you know, who don't really have any other um obvious entrance into this kind of writing
0: yeah and it can kind of be a gateway i think into now i can go look for for more things about these myths and stuff and some of the stories so it was actually um, poems short stories and novellas and some of them were set in japan some of them were about japanese myths some of them were only very tangentially related to japan um the one i was most excited to read was a novella called silently and very fast which is by the way, my favorite title for anything ever. Um, It is about an an artificial intelligence and it was very well done. It was, there were things in it that I was not a fan of, but it was written very well. Um, And so I was glad to be able to get to read that story. And basically it was, it sort of happened to be set in Japan, but it could have been about any culture because it was set so far in the future that it was about a a completely separate culture, if that makes sense.
1: Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like the sound of that just because, you know, you said AI, and also the title sounds so cool.
0: Yeah, she's... If I haven't spoken about her enough already, I highly recommend her if you like really dense, really weird writing. And best title ever. (laughs) Dense
1: weird writing is usually my, my kind of favorite writing.
0: Yeah, yeah. She's, like... I wouldn't call her weird fiction in the same way that I would call, like, China Mayville weird fiction, but I would call her very stylized and she has a little bit of that, like, Jeff Vandermeer density and, like, organic literary flavor to her stuff.
1: Right. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Um, And then I read uprooted by naomi Novik, which i wanted to make sure to talk about because it was um it was nominated for a hugo award which could be a very long conversation but i'm not really going to go into the hugo drama stuff because i don't know a <laughs> lot about it um i just know that a lot of really good books are on that list for the best novel um and i read uprooted recently it's a I uh i would Technically an adult novel, but it had a very young adult sort of flavor to it. Um, in that, it was about a young girl who goes and becomes a a witch or a wizard. I think she's really called a witch in the parlance of that world. But um, I liked the world a lot more than I liked the story. It the the characters were a little were a little light, but the world was really interesting and had this like sort of semi sentient forest as the antagonist and i wanted more of that and less of the main characters
1: yeah um like the idea of a semi-sentient forest just kind of reminds me of a little bit of like in lord of the rings when they're at the battle that that battle at Minas Tirith, I think. And like there's the ants are coming in and they can just see them as like forests coming in. And like in the book, like if you've watched the movies first, you know what's happening. But if you're reading the book and you don't know, like it seems really ominous and cool that like these trees are just kind of attacking. Not really attacking, but they're kind of closing in. And that kind of gives me a similar idea to that. Like I haven't read Uproad, obviously, but I like I like that idea of just vaguely ominous trees.
0: It was very much like that, and it had that whole I think it was Macbeth that has the forest marching,
1: that oh, yeah. whole feel.
0: Um, but even that didn't really play out the way I wanted it to. Basically, I wanted to like this book more than I did. It had some really good descriptions. It had some really good female friendships. I was afraid that like some of the main characters' female friends would be sidelined, and they weren't. Um, but like there was a, a the love story at the center of it really went. In a much more boring direction than I thought it would, which is entirely a matter of taste. So that's entirely like, (laughs) that's you know, your mileage may vary, but it was not the book that I wanted it to be. But if you like um, sort of uh, young adult fantasy, it's worth taking a look at. And a lot of people are talking about it right now because of the awards.
1: Uh, That makes sense. Yeah, I don't I I hate it when a book has like everything it, it should need to make it a book you like, but it doesn't quite reach that point.
0: I know this one was a stretch for me because I'm not so into the high fantasy thing and it was very much high fantasy and that tends to take a little more work to convince me because it's just I'm more of a science fiction person. So I think even just going into it, it wasn't guaranteed to be my type of thing and the writing itself didn't elevate it for me.
1: I'm in the same boat there. High fantasy... I can like it, but I'm not going to like it right off the bat. Like, if you give me a science fiction book and I start reading it, I'll get into it straight away because I'll be like, oh, it's science fiction. High fantasy, I'm a bit like, eh, I might might check that out.
0: Yeah, it takes more convincing, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I know other people are completely different. Like, some people way prefer high fantasy over science fiction. It's just, yeah, not for me.
0: Yep, and it's just personal preference. And there's some high fantasy that I love. I at every possible moment, try to tell people to read the Crossroads series by Kate Elliott because they're wonderful. But not... Th- just the trappings of it aren't really enough to hold me. Yeah, same. So... um that was, that's my my books for this week. There are some more, but I'm going to try to keep it to two, two for now. Um, <laughs> so we're going to move on to games. I actually played more games this week, but Saf had a very exciting game weekend. So I'm going to let you go ahead and talk about that.
1: Yeah, so I didn't read any books last week, or the week before that, or the week before that, because I was really busy preparing for Play-by-Play Fest, which was... The first independent and somewhat international games festival in New Zealand. Um, So it's all like other ones in other countries that I suddenly forgot all the names of, even though they exist. Um, Basically, it was run by Lucy Morris and Peter and Robert Curry. Um, Peter and Robert are the people who are part of... They are Dino Polo Club, which made Mini Metro, which is quite a popular app app game at the moment. Um, They just won a BAFTA, actually, for it. Um, And so it was... A festival down in wellington which is our capital city here and it was basically a week-long exhibition of the games that made the finalists for the awards and a bunch of little workshops that were for teenagers and kids and stuff so i went down partly as an event photographer partly as a volunteer and also partly because i was running a workshop so i ran a workshop about twine the game engine thing for making interactive fiction and that kind of stuff um A very small little group, but they most of them were really into what they were making. Like one kid was making like a puzzle game. We had to escape a room, and you had to like do certain things to unlock certain things, and it was really cool. He got really into that. And there was one kid that was kind of making more of a a pick your adventure, pick your path adventure game sort of thing, which was based in his lore that he'd already created for something else. So he was really into that as well. Um, And then there was one yeah it was really cool and he was so excited about it that I was just like oh this is amazing I remember being like this like so enthusiastic about my world yeah and I mean I, <laughs> I still am but less outwardly so than when I was a kid um, yeah
0: and you kind of have no fear at that age
1: yeah exactly and he seemed really into it like apparently a lot of those kids work most of the workshops over the week so they seem really interested in game development so I'm hoping that this festival got them thinking about it more so that maybe they will get into it. Like, maybe in five years I'll actually see them making games, which would be really cool. Cool. Uh, yeah, Um. and so, yeah, there were a whole bunch of New Zealand and a couple Australian games that were at the awards and the finalists. So Armello, which is a game that's quite big at the moment, which is an Australian game, won the Over the Ditch Award, which was the one award we have for Australians because we don't want to, like, exclude them because they're kind of our friends a little bit. Um. So
0: is is yeah. that one award, like you only get one award or one award. Like it's very important that you have an award.
1: A little bit of both. (laughs) We want to make sure they're recognized for being amazing because they are and also to bring them over to the festival. But we didn't want to take away from the New Zealand industry, which has a lot of amazing games. Um, The game that actually like, swept the awards It's this game called depth which is a game i've never heard of before this week but it's apparently actually quite popular it's basically you are divers versus sharks and so there's two teams and it is terrifying like i played it for like five minutes or something as a diver and i just i nearly cried because the sharks are just really scary there's like a heartbeat when they get closer to you Ah, so you can hear them coming that's really intense. it is it's so intense um and apparently this one kid played it for like Half an hour, and then went outside to throw up, and I was like, "Why did this
0: kid play this game?" <laughs> the heartbeat thing always gets me. Like they, that was um, the death screens in Mass Effect Two had like intense heartbeat, and it freaks oh, me out. Yeah.
1: And like in Jack and Dexter, the first Jack and Dexter game, there was the shark. And when it like when you swam out too far, the shark would come and kill you to stop you from going beyond the bounds of the game. And it would have a heartbeat that slowly got closer and closer. And that still sticks with me now. Like it scared me so much as a kid and it still scares me now. And so oh, I think that. that kind of influenced me playing that depth game as well. It's a really cool game and it seems like a really fun game to play as friends. But I was just too scared to play it because I'm a wuss.
0: I think I would be too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like if anyone listening to this is in Australia or New Zealand and they they like game stuff game dev or playing games they should definitely hop over to it next year because it is happening again next year and it was possibly the most fun half week I've had this year it was just crazy fun and I met so many cool people like I met one of the guys who created Crossy Road Matt Hall Um, and he he was pretty cool he's very straight-faced like He's one of those very straight-faced, sarcastic people, so you can never tell if he's being serious or not, which always scares me because I don't know where I stand with people like that. But he was really lovely and um, just, yeah, it's a it's a great event for meeting awesome like-minded people and I just love going to, it's not a convention, but it's a conference, I guess, I like going to those kind of places that have a lot of people interested in what you do. Like Celebration, you know when you meet someone new that you both like Star Wars, so you can talk to them about that. Like at this, you know you both like games or you like making games, so you can talk to them about that. And it's the kind of place I thrive because I can do that. I like talking to people a lot, but when I'm just meeting random people at like a party or something, I'm just like, do you you like Mass Effect? Do do you like Halo? Like what what can we talk about here? (laughs) But here I know they'll like games in some form
0: yeah so is there anything in particular that you feel like you learned and took away like for your own games or was it more of you teaching other people or a little of both?
1: A little of both um, the Saturday had a co-conference day that was just a whole bunch of talks and so it had um, like Victoria Smith who was a freelance game environment artist down here um, she did a talk about environment environmental art and also disneyland and so like what lessons we can learn from disneyland about how um like how the haunted mansion has the shadows like artificially kind of painted in or artificially emphasized with different paint colors and stuff like that and so it was sort of saying like these these things that disneyland does to make their environment seem like fit the narrative better you can bring into your own environmental art and games which even though i'm not an environmental artist i found it very interesting as from a narrative standpoint, because that's the kind of stuff you have to think about as a narrative designer, you got to think about environmental narrative as well. So I thought that was really interesting. And there was one about diversity by Liam Esler, who worked, who's worked at Obsidian and Beamdog. Um, And that was really good, I think for New Zealand to listen to because us as an industry are still, I mean, all games industries are really bad at diversity in the workplace, but New Zealand is especially bad as well, especially since we're so small. And so it was a really good talk because it explained that, you need 30% of any minority within your company or whatever to encourage for other minorities people of that minority to feel encouraged to actually join so you need 30% of your team to be women so that other women will feel safe joining up until that point they're not going to feel comfortable joining your environment and so that's and apparently in the games industry it's only about 19% or 20% of people like of women in the games and it's even worse if you like break it down to even more minorities and so that was a really interesting talk that was something i already mostly knew but it was good to hear it again in a more official capacity and also have it, have it spread to the rest of the community somewhat.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that there have been studies about, like, 30%. That's a very precise number. Yeah, and I thought
1: that too, but I guess everyone kind of, There's always somebody doing really precise science for everything, which I never think about it until I actually see numbers. And I'm like, somebody actually went out of their way to figure this out, which is a good thing to figure out because once you've got those numbers, you can go to companies and be like, okay, you need this many people, this many women, if you're actually trying to make an effort to bring in more women. And there was a big talk as well about changing your environment so that other people will feel more comfortable, like to kill the kind of bro attitude with an environment. Um... And also, like, if you're trying to make an outreach to people of other minorities, make sure you have somebody of that minority to ask to make sure you're doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I'm picturing, like, so a room full of 10 people, you'd have three of them be women or something. Like, I I feel like I'd feel more comfortable in that room
1: because yeah, just like, knowing
0: who you can kind of automatically gravitate to. Yeah,
1: like, more than you would, but just two women because then there's still not very many within that room. But, like, if it's three, that's a bit better.
0: Yeah, and that's not to say that I wouldn't gravitate to, like, start conversations with people who weren't women. But when you're talking about corporate diversity, that impression makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so that was my weekend. It was a lot of walking. My feet were dead by the end of it. My voice, which you can probably hear, is still not recovered from that weekend. Um, But it was amazing. And... I seriously suggest, like, if you're not the kind of person to check out indie games, you should do that anyways. Like, go look on Greenlight, see what's happening there. Go look on itch.io and see what's happening there. Like, just look around and find indie games and play them because they are amazing.
0: I have a couple things bookmarked just from like I've started following more indie developers since we've been talking about this. But this week I played. I guess I would call it the least indie of all indie games, which is Undertale, which is <laughs> the one everyone's been talking about. Um, yep. Did you how do you play that Saf? I have,
1: but I'm still stuck in a certain point and I'm too scared to start it up again.
0: Oh no. Oh, that because, doesn't bode yeah. well. It So, I'm not very far in. I'm like I just got to tutorial's house. So I'm like minutes in and it's supposed to be like an eight hour game it's supposed to be short but I'm already like it's not easy like there are no difficult things to it
1: yeah I'm having I'm not much further than you I think I'm only like 20 minutes further um and I basically you reach a point if if you are you doing a passive playthrough
0: yes I haven't my goal is to not fight anything
1: yeah, that's what I'm doing. And it is very difficult to do that, which I have now realized. And I don't like it. I mean, I do. I really like the game and I love the way that you have to do it. But it's so hard. Nobody prepared me for how hard it actually is.
0: Yeah. So that's one of the things I found interesting about this is that so the game, it was always advertised to me and it advertises to itself as you can choose whether to go the um, like the fighting route or the pacifist route. And I was under the impression that those two things are, like, equally viable options. In the way that in, like, Mass Effect, which we're going to talk about later, has Paragon and Renegade points. And they're reasonably, by, by the time you hit the end, they're reasonably the same difficulty. Like, from the very start, I was like, alright, Undertale, cute game. It's, it's funny, and it has interesting, like, dark undertones. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do the pacifist route. And one of the first things that you have to do is Toriel, the, like, the the goat-like mother figure who, like, helps you, says, stay in this hallway. I'll come back for you. Just wait here. And she gives you a cell phone. And I was like, all right, is my character supposed to just wait here? Because you're in a long room that takes, like, I don't know, 15 seconds or something to run across, like, a significant time in video game time. And... She just wants you to stay there. And I'm like, does the game want me to stay here? Like, already I'm trying to outthink it. Like, what is its inner morality? Like, does it want me to do exactly what the characters tell me to do? Or does it count something else toward its own internal morality? So I just sat there for a while and nothing happened. And I got bored. And I did look at a walkthrough at this point, which told me that you are supposed to leave that room. Like, nothing, she'll never come back for you. She will Yeah, which which it sounds very grim. Um she will if you wait long enough and it's like ten minutes, she'll send you a call about like she lost her cell phone. So you have to leave the room. And I'm gonna be curious about how whether things like that where you're sort of forced to disobey keep happening.
1: Yeah. I remember that one too and I mean I'm a typical impatient gamer and I was like what happens if I just leave the room now? Will she call and yell at me? Um, so I walk straight out basically but that does kind of right there kind of give you an idea of thinking about what your choices are and like whether or not the game wants you to do something or not like you like you said out the game. I was doing that from the start as well because I'd heard so much about the game I was like okay I've got to think about what I'm doing more than I normally would potentially um, and I like how the whole choice between Having a passive run and a violent run makes you really think about whether or not you're actually going to fight something because if you don't fight, if you just take a passive route, you never get, gain experience points, you never level up, you never get stronger, you never get more health, basically. And so when you reach higher leveled fighting, things high level battles you're totally unprepared like you can't fight there's you've made that choice by that point and you can't do it anymore or else you'll just die and like for people who play a lot of like action-based games or anything like that's terrifying you don't want to reach a point where you can't kill your enemy because you've made these choices but at the same time why are you fighting them if you could find another way out of it like it's really interesting the way it makes you think about how you're doing your fighting
0: yeah and it's definitely like making my my gamer instincts war against one another because I hate that I'm not gaining experience points, but I also want to do like the moral path. And it's more so Undertale is more Pokemon than I expected. Um I heard it described as like the bullet time combat, which it is, but it's also the choice, the way you make your choices is a lot like the menu in Pokemon. And you monsters pop up out of nowhere, which I didn't know happened. I thought that like you had to go talk, like you'd see a boss coming, basically, or you see a monster coming. You have to go talk to them, but not really. You can The ones that you can actually see on the screen are ones that have dialogue, but things you need to fight will just pop up with no warning, and it's not like Pokemon where you can either step in the grass or step on the path, and you know whether you'll get attacked. You don't know, and I found myself skipping a lot of battles because I knew I wasn't going to gain any experience from them anyway, And I just wanted to concentrate on the puzzle. But then I was like, where's my repel? You know, I just want to... Like, the battles weren't... They weren't fun and they weren't rewarding. So I just wanted to stick to the puzzle.
1: Yeah, that's one problem, is that I think the game kind of drives you towards fighting. Like, it pushes you in that direction. But it doesn't actually want you to do it. Um, Like, because I know... I don't know how much of a spoiler is, but I know that if you do kill someone or if you do fight, like, it doesn't get forgotten. Even if you reset the game and start a new game, it's going to remember that you fought someone. Because um, I had a friend that did that and got really mad because the game remembered their choice, even though they'd start a new game. And I was like, that's kind of the point, though, is that it's trying to make you think about your choices more than that. And if you make that choice, then you've got to stick with it kind of thing. And I really like that, but also that is terrifying.
0: Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to do the pacifist run. Because I was like, this I don't want this guilt on me. <laughs> Undertale will remember my sins forever. Yeah, it really does make you second guess choosing but to kill someone. I didn't expect it to be working so hard against the pacifist technique which I guess maybe yeah. there's a lesson in there that I'll learn by the end of the game but right now that's a little like artificial to me if that makes sense
1: yeah I get what you mean there and I kind of agree
0: but the dialogue is really funny it's it's a very clever game I'm not I don't like the art style the art style makes it a little hard for me to connect to the characters because it's, it's um, that like super low tech look and not only that but almost a um purposefully distorted look and I just I'm having trouble with it but I like the the writing so far I'm gonna keep going it's supposed to be a short game we'll see how long it takes me.
1: I have reached the point now where an eight hour game doesn't seem short to me anymore because I'm so used to playing like really short indie games so I'm so like... When I reached the point I reached, I was like, surely I'm I'm quite far through the game, right? And then I, I talked to someone, they're like, oh, you're so early on. And I was like, no, I've got so much more yeah. to go.
0: Yeah, eight hours sounded like very quick to me at first. And then I realized I might be going a little slower than, <laughs> slower than the average bear. We'll see.
1: I'm hoping that eight hours counts in everyone getting stuck at places so that I don't feel so bad about it.
0: I hope so. I mean the puzzles are fun, but so far the fighting is not really fun. Or the talking, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I've actually been playing an another indie game that doesn't seem so indie anymore, which is Stardew Valley, which I got given for my birthday um a while yeah, back. So
0: <laughs> is this is it as addictive as as people say?
1: It actually is. I'm not the kind of person to get addicted to games. I mean If you ignore The Sims, because I get very addicted to The Sims, but Stardew Valley is super addictive because it's so... It gives you objectives, like a lot of objectives. Like You get thrown into the game. You basically start off as this person who has become sick of their corporate city life and needs to be free and so they go off to their grandfather's farm their grandfather gave them the farm um, when they died and so they go off to the farm and they decide to be a farmer instead as you do and so it's basically you get there and then you have all the stuff you can do something like you can make crops you can go cut trees mine rocks go explore the caves and see what's happening down there like suddenly the world just opens up for you basically and so you wake up the next day and you're like what do I do first and it kind of reaches this point where you you have figured out what you need to do to do certain things and so you like build crops and you've got to look after your crops and like you build a barn and you've got cows and you know there's things to explore like there's the community hall which has some kind of mysterious story which I haven't started investigating yet and then there's like the mines which has some other kind of weird story happening as well and so you've got all of these things. It's it's a relatively large world for being such a small game. As well as being able to romance characters and marry characters. And it's so much fun because, it, like I said, like there's no pressure to it. You don't have a time limit for anything. It's not like you have to do this before this season ends or anything. So you can kind of just take it at your own pace. Be like, I'm just going to fish today and that's all I'm going to do. And the next day you wake up, you'll be like, I'm going to chop trees today and that's all I'm going to do. And because each day is quite short as well. Like... I think every hour is like 10 seconds or every... That seems wrong. But I think it's something like that. Um, that seems so wrong now that I've said that. But there's short days and basically you mm. can just go to bed at any time and that ends the day and you start the next day. So you can take as long as you want doing anything, as short as you want. And it's got such like cute art, little, little pixel art, and such soothing music that once you're in it, you just feel so relaxed.
0: Now, you said... So is the main character customizable? You said they were yeah. The, yeah.
1: So you can choose their gender, choose their name, choose what they look like. You can even have like blue skin colors, which I chose and now I'm regretting it because I have this one random blue person in the middle of a in the middle of a village. But it's fine. And you can also oh, no. choose whether or not you want like a dog or a cat. Like you choose at the start, like are you a dog person or a cat person? And then during the game you get a dog or a cat. So I got a cat because I decided I was a cat person and you can name them too, which is great.
0: Oh, what did you name your cats? My cats
1: called Miso because that was for one thing, that was the default name it gave me, but also because I love naming animals after food.
0: <laughs> I had a friend who named a lot of her chickens after spices. So like there was um, like paprika was a chicken and <laughs> that reminds me of that.
1: Oh, that's so cute. I thought so. Oh, I love that. I'm going to do that in the game now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, cool. So do you, is, are the character quest lines, like, I'm, I'm, everything, like, every game I picture as a Bioware game, are there, like, deep characterization for the side characters or how in-depth is the romance stuff and the character stuff?
1: I'm not entirely sure because I haven't done too much of that yet. I've been trying to romance Leah, Leah, Lee, I don't know how to say her name, who is basically like this artist who sculpts from like wood that I assume she cuts down herself. She like wanders out to the lake to sketch and to the ocean to sketch and she's just so cool and I love her. She's like a redhead, so she's my type basically and I've been just talking to her a lot and you do they do kind of have storylines like hers has been why she left the city to go out to the woods and like what she's trying to do. And so you can encourage her to open an art fair um, and get her art more recognized so that she can earn money and stuff like that. And so I assume the other characters kind of have similar things as well. I know there's a subplot of um, there's like a massive supermarket chain. Basically that's like, I think they might be more than supermarkets. I'm not entirely sure, but they basically come to Stardew Valley and they've got a, store on the other side of the river that's quite far away um but i think there's like a subplot of them potentially taking over stardew valley that you can either encourage or discourage and so i'm trying to figure out how to do that because i don't want that to happen
0: huh so this is sort of anti-corporate thing to it
1: yeah it's got a lot of those themes running through it and i'm not sure how strong that's going to be by the time i've gotten more through the game but yeah it's definitely there
0: cool i speaking of well, <laughs> speaking of games that should be more like Bioware games, I've the <laughs> only other thing that I've been playing this recently is Destiny, naturally, because all I do is play Destiny. But um, last week I finished the King's Fall raid for the first time, which was super exciting. Um, we got some college friends together, and then uh, Tom, Darth Internus, came along, and we defeated the most difficult raid in the game and I never do end game stuff because I'm just not that good and like had trouble getting people together but we did it so I was very proud of myself I'm proud of you too thanks (laughs) so what was it like um, say again what was it like um so it took a long time it took about four hours which is I was told a typical time for this raid it's four maybe more like five or six separate sections, which entail either fighting, you know, fighting a boss, or just puzzles. And the group we were with was really good, because they would sort of stop us at every, uh, the entrance every section, and say, this is what we have to do here, and like, if there's any interesting story stuff behind it, they would say, well, this is what's referenced in this part of the lore, and then they would sort of, you know, let us uh, look around. And the... (laughs) The hardest part for me of Destiny sometimes is the, like, the jumping stuff. There'll be these jumping puzzles where you have to move from moving platforms. And it's just, it's hard. <laughs> um, Because you're in a you're in, uh, first-person point of view a lot. And I don't know, I'm just not coordinated. But I've now done the most difficult jumping puzzles and, like, bounced off walls and walked on these tiny little ledges. And I'm almost more proud of that than I am of actually shooting things.
1: I know so many people that have trouble with jumping puzzles. I really like them. I'm terrible at them, but I love them, so I never realize how bad I am. But I have a lot of friends, like, and the Old Republic has a bunch of jumping puzzles to get, like, holocrons and stuff. And my friends hate them so much.
0: <laughs> I I don't hate them. I just wish I was better at them. But now, <laughs> see, I'm I'm more confident now that I've done all these, like... It, it's ridiculous, too, because, like, there's a part where basically if you touched the wall you're going down a practically vertical surface and if you touch the wall the wall is essentially slippery so you'll just be like boomeranged out into the abyss <laughs> and it <laughs> was very funny and very embarrassing it took a very long time but we persevered eventually
1: that sounds amazing i love it so much
0: <laughs> and i have better gear now so I'm, I'm not i'm still not at the max level but i'm doing decently And there's still a lot to do in Destiny. It is, I think it's um, thriving pretty well for all that its reception has not been that great all the time. There's a ton to do right now with the um, Court of Oryx and like PvP stuff if you're into that. And so I'm quite enjoying that still.
1: I'm glad that it kind of got its footing after a while because, yeah, it's it had a lot of hype leading up to it. And it disappointed a lot of people, but it seems to have fixed... It's issues to a point that people have stuck with it and other people have joined it and stuck around too, which is nice to see when um, a company lo- like notices that stuff and like makes an effort. I guess they kind of have to as well because it's supposed to be an MMO thing, so it's got to stick around. Um, but it's even though I never got into it, because partly because I never got the new consoles, but partly because it didn't do what I wanted it to do with Story, it's still nice to watch my friends play it and enjoy it.
0: Part of me, I think, believes that they're going right now on the strength of their gameplay, which is very good. It's a really solid shooter. Um, The story stuff is still not quite what I wanted it to be. It's almost there. It's so close. But I still, I love Destiny, and I love the world, and I can still hardly recommend it for its story. But if you get, if you play it, and you want to talk about the story... Talk to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You seem like the kind of person to talk to about it, yeah.
0: I love all the lore stuff. It's just so buried. Yeah, I
1: kind of appreciate that because it means that, like, there's lore to find if you go looking for it, but it's not forced in your face for, like, the shooters, the shooting people that just want to go and shoot, which is not necessarily a good balance, but I guess it kind of works for Bungie's audience there. I think the issue they'd had, they'd had, yeah, originally was that. Halo has quite strong lore and story, and Destiny didn't entirely succeed in that point. But I do, like, there were issues in production that I understand happened with that that meant that that didn't work out like they planned, which is partly why I didn't start playing it. But it's nice to hear that, you know, there's good lore if you go looking for it.
0: Yeah, and Destiny is definitely, and I think it still is, kind of catching up to itself. It's still not... I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes exactly, but I feel like there's there's still a little bit working on the bones of whatever it was that got scrapped. And you can't really build something fully new on a half-finished story. And they know that now. And hopefully the story is just going to keep getting better.
1: I got to say, like, that is kind of an example of, like, what Bungie did there is kind of an example of how game narrative is often not taken as an important, like it's the least important function, basically in a game, and that's kind of how it always will be. Like I'm not saying I'm not disagreeing because you kind of need programming, and art, very much so in games. But like basically what happened with Bungie is they had they had a, a story written and everything, but then higher ups decide they didn't want that particular story, and that game writer either left or got fired. I can't exactly remember, and then another writer got brought in to. A narrative designer got brought in to fix what was left, basically, which I understand happens a lot in games. That's kind of just how it goes. But it's kind of a good example of if you look at Destiny now, like how important getting that narrative from the start and making it solid within the gameplay and the mechanics and everything from the start and making sure you know what you're doing is really important when you're making a game. Because if you end up later on having to just make the narrative fit what's there already, it never comes across as well.
0: Yeah, and that's... Um, so I realize I didn't say it at the beginning of this episode because the beginning of this episode we were just recovering from Skype actually working. Um, but we're going to talk about Mass Effect narrative later, so we will talk about that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right, so I'm ready to move. We're going to do, I think, a brief, brief Star Wars news thing, but I'm ready to go into that if you are. Uh, hell yeah, I am. Cool. So... We have, I'm actually really happy about the stuff we have to talk about with Star Wars this week because we, there was some news that I thought was pretty dry and we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Daisy Ridley fighting people and clothing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So her universe today announced a new line of um, uh, The Force Awakens clothes and there's some really cool stuff. I'm not usually into the Her Universe collections. They just, I found a lot of them are difficult to dress up. Or they, they look sort of cartoony. And they just don't really fit my style or what I would want to wear every day. But the, the Force Awakens stuff looks really good. And like everyone I know is like, look at this Ray cardigan. And I want the Ray cardigan. Oh, it's
1: gorgeous. So gorgeous.
0: It is, and it it would only be more perfect if it had thumb holes like a lot of their costume sweaters do. But it just looks like you could dress it up really well. Like, I could wear this to work. It has, um like, slits in the shoulders to look like a raised costume, but you could totally, like, wear that in every day.
1: Yeah, like, that is essentially the kind of thing I would wear in my daily wear. Like, if you want the idea of what my style is, that is very much it.
0: I So my everyday style, if I have one, which is debatable, is probably that Phasma jacket. Because that's the other thing that I really want is the Phasma jacket, which is like like black leather and an asymmetrical collar, which is the, that's, I wear a lot of that. And it looks like it looks really cool either zipped up or open because it has the collar that like flaps over to the side. And I love that. Mm. And there's not enough. Phasma love in the world, so I would get it just to be like, this is this is my fave.
1: And I like that they used the cape as inspiration for it instead of like making it silver or something because silver never really comes across as well, like as casually when you're making fashion stuff. But black is very easy to use and it's still really obvious what the what the inspiration is.
0: Yeah, I think I liked it partially because it's obvious, like if you know, but it doesn't immediately scream stormtrooper. Yeah. L- which the other, there's a stormtrooper dress, which I do not like as much. Um, I think it's a little too, it I it's a little too costumey and the shoulders are kind of weird. <laughs> the
1: shoulders are weird. I'm not into the, if it had just been like black straps going up, I think I would like it a bit more.
0: So usually I would like this kind of thing. Like the ray, the ray cardigan essentially has the same kind of shoulders. It's just a thicker, the um, like the strap by the neck is thicker. Yeah. But I don't know these, cause it's just two little black strips, and I feel like unless basically unless you have really good arms, it's just not gonna quite fit right. And even if your shoulders are wider than the. The dress is made for. It's gonna be too loose or too tight or something.
1: Yeah, I definitely feel like this dress has been designed with more thinner people in mind. Like, I don't think it would look good on me.
0: <laughs> no, I yeah i I would be, I would be self conscious in this one. For what it's worth, they were very careful with this line, and I think they've done it before. They have um, plus size versions of these, and they have plus size models modeling them, which is it it was nice to see that so obviously um advertised as well.
1: Yeah, I'm glad they're doing the doing the work there to make it more visible and also like essential basically.
0: Yeah, but that one personally, I don't I don't know that that one would work for me, but the phasma one and the ray one like this is the most i've ever wanted to go out and buy her universe things Ugh, yeah
1: i even want the phasma one i actually want the finn one as well but i wish it just didn't have like the rebel alliance symbol on the back like i'm similar to there's the uh pose jump flight suit or whatever which is a dress i guess it's just a rebel alliance dress or a resistance dress but i would like it a lot more as well if it didn't have that resistance symbol on it because it. Like it's it's really chill and cute until you get to that and then that makes it very obviously like oh it's star Wars which I admit a lot of people probably do want but I like to be a bit more undercover with my nerd wear just because that's who I am as a person
0: yeah and I agree and I like I like the description of chill there because I, I think Ray the ray the cardigan is super chill yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah there are there are times when I want to like just wear a Graphic t shirt with Star Wars characters on it. There are times that I do, but more high end stuff like this, and this stuff is relatively expensive, then I want it to be more subtle, usually.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's not like a dissing anybody that doesn't, because I, I admit, like, wearing your fandom loud and proud is always really good, because then you can meet other friends who like it as well, and you can be like, look, I'm a fan of this. But also, I do like dressing, yeah, more low key a lot of the time, just because. I don't even know why. I just like the look. Like, I like the raised cardigan because that's my style. It's just, it's, it's there and it's slouchy and it's just so comfortable looking and I just want it so bad.
0: Now, I would agree with you about the sort of subtle, I like the subtle looks. Yeah.
1: Which the fin jacket does until you get to the back.
0: And, yeah. And the one in the movie doesn't have the Rebel Alliance symbol on the back either.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That,
0: that would bug me because then... Cause it's, it's not, I mean, I know it's not directly accurate anyway, but that immediately makes it much less accurate.
1: Yeah, so I'm not so into that. Otherwise, I would totally be into getting that. Not that I would, because shipping here would cost like twice as much as the outfits. But maybe one day I'll get that cardigan.
0: So let's talk about the Kylo Ren dress. <laughs> I, I have, this one I don't think translates the look of the character to the look of the clothes as well as the others do. Maybe the red is supposed to look like the lightsaber. I kind of see the, like, cross guard look oh, yeah. there. But this looks more like a Renaissance dress than a Star Wars-inspired thing.
1: Yeah, like I said it before the podcast, but it kind of reminds me just of My Immortal, especially the way they've yeah. dressed it up with um, <laughs> that one model with, like, the choker and the gloves and the fishnet stockings.
0: Yeah, it's... <laughs> I agree. And that's, like... That's that's hot topics brand too, and like I feel like now before we were saying we don't want them to be too Star Wars and now we're saying it's it's not Star Wars enough, but like, where's the middle ground? But this one I think just has too many visual cues toward things that aren't Star Wars. It's it's kind of distracting. Unless there's any detail, like, is the is the top kind of ruffled like his scarf yeah the top looks like the mask a little bit which I don't really like that either that's interesting that choice it's
1: an interesting choice like I kind of like the dress but not as a Kylo Ren dress and I'm also never very fond of them the high low thing so it's like short at the front and long at the back because it doesn't look good on short people (laughs) and I'm a short person
0: there is that and I actually was looking at that on the ray cardigan too because that has a pretty severe like cut in the back Yeah. But it's because you can kind of cross it in the front, which looks, it just looks warm and like it adds to that slouchy tattered look. I think that one works better. Yeah.
1: Like we just keep coming back to that cardigan, but it's such a good cardigan.
0: I know. (laughs) I feel like this one, if this one doesn't sell out, then my Twitter feed has been lying about the buying power of my Twitter feed. (laughs) Yeah, I agree there. I'm definitely gonna see if these if these are in stock. Um, so the only other real Star Wars news that I wanted to highlight was the video of Daisy Ridley performing um, like a wushu attacks with a staff. She did a video with um, oh gosh now I have to go look at the link to see his name. She did a video with one of the stuntmen, who the guy who played. Um, the stormtrooper who fights Finn, the traitor trooper. <laughs> and she uh, she just does some some moves with like an, an Eskrima stick. And it's pretty cool. And this brings me back to like watching the uh, behind the scenes of the prequel trilogy because I always loved watching the lightsaber fights. And like even the Force Awakens Blu-ray had some decent behind the scenes. But this was just purely like, just one person doing their thing. And it was it was really cool.
1: Yeah, it just... It shows how good she is at this stuff now as well because she's been trained, like, so super trained um, just for the movies and, like, watching her fitness videos. She's so tough, so strong. She could probably bench lift me, like, without even thinking about it. And, like, seeing her fight, well, not really fight, but, like, show off her staff skills is really cool as well.
0: She, it was uh, Liang Yang who she worked with and she posted the picture on Instagram or posted the video on Instagram. But, um, it's I I compare every single Star Wars martial artist that I see to Ray Park because he's my favorite and I think he does an incredible job of like controlling his moves and really snapping his moves and she flows a lot more like I don't know if it's that she's more inexperienced or that it's just her style or the style that they wanted to convey her character but um She, basically, I thought she looked really cool, even though she didn't have all the hallmarks of, like, the things that I usually look for when I'm watching martial arts, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And, yeah, I mean, I'm less, less, I love martial arts films a lot, but I'm less observant of styles and stuff. So I just watched it, I'm like, that's so cool, I wish I could do that.
0: (laughs) It, It was very cool. Yeah. And I've not done Wushu, so I don't know exactly what she's doing, but... I, uh, she's too, she's fast, and like, I think you can tell how much, like, gymnastics type stuff she's done, because she's just really smooth with the way she moves in this.
1: Yeah, and it translates so well to the screen as well when she's actually playing Ray, And I'm glad, I'm glad to see it, like, behind the scenes as well. Like, I'm similar with The Hunger Games, like, seeing what Jennifer Lawrence was doing in training for Katniss, like, it, it really works so well when you know the actor can actually do it.
0: Yeah. So, this has been our Daisy Ridley appreciation segment of the <laughs> podcast, <laughs> which was all the Star Wars news this week. We are actually running quite long, but we're going to do our main topic discussion, which is going to be Mass Effect and what writers can learn from the narrative of Mass Effect. So, um I wanted to talk a little bit about how Bioware structures its stories, because as a fiction writer, or someone who attempts to be a fiction writer, I feel like they do a really good job of basically using the same framework in every game. They have your protagonist, your challenge, your probably things to gather along the way, like items, or those things can be people. In Mass Effect 3, you're gathering armies. And along the way, you have um, characters that have really, often really deep backstories. And their characters are intrinsically connected to their motivations and to like their settings. So I, I really love the loyalty missions in Mass Effect 2. And they taught me a lot about how to tie a character's personality into a character's Scenario. So, like, Garrus is sort of a rogue agent in Mass Effect 2, but he has to decide exactly how rogue he's going to be. He has to decide whether he's going to kill an old colleague. Like, that's a really simple hook, but it works really well. So, Saf, what do you sort of... When you think of Bioware style or Mass Effect writing style, what do you take away from that?
1: Definitely the choices and the agency the player has within the story. Because a lot of games... Like, there's more emphasis on choice in a lot of games recently. It's becoming more of a thing, probably because of Bioware's success and also Skyrim's success. Um, But Bioware does it in a very good way that, like, you feel... Like, you actually have choice, and that your choices have repercussions. Like, I spent the entirety of Mass Effect 3, I didn't stop playing from the time I started. I spent the entire thing just in a state of constant fear because I thought every choice I was going to make was going to ruin everything for me. Also, a lot of like when I got up to the end of Mass Effect 2, I was just really anxious because I was like, did I make the right choices? What have I done? Um, Which case,
0: everything, every choice will ruin things for you. Yeah, because the
1: suicide mission is intense, and I had to do it like three times to get it right so that Morden didn't keep dying, because Morden kept dying. Um, Oh, no. (laughs) And so that is definitely the main thing for me, and as well as that, like, the character backstories and how much influence you can have on them, how much they change how you play as well, because the characters in, like, Mass Effect and all other Bioware games are really interesting, and they're kind of what draw me to the games as well. Like, I think part of the reason... I didn't like Dragon Age Inquisition as much as I like the other Dragon Age games, is because I didn't get as drawn in by the characters. Like, I love all of the Origins characters. I love all the characters in Dragon Age 2, except for, like, Fenris. I don't like him. But my dislike for him is also really compelling as well. Um, In Inquisition, I was just really ambivalent about a lot of the characters, because I think the game was just so open-world, the characters got a little bit lost in it.
0: It's funny. When we started talking about doing this show... Choice was the last thing that I thought of to add, even though choice is so integral to these and creating your own custom character is so integral to them. And I think that's partly because I have my own path set very firmly in mind. Like, I know what my shepherd did, so that's what happened. So I don't need to worry about the choice. (laughs) But also, I am coming at it from a fiction, like, from a prose fiction perspective, in which case it's much more difficult to leverage that choice but you brought up an interesting thing too about sort of liking the the characters around you um I would say I generally Mass Effect 2 is like my favorite game in existence I generally liked all of the characters I did not like Miranda but I did not like Miranda for partially internalized misogyny reasons and partially she's very much a female character written for a male audience reasons. Like, it wasn't about her character, it was about the meta creation of her character.
1: Yeah, you're right there. I love Miranda, but I, that's definitely true. Like, I didn't like her to begin with. Like The first thing you see of her is a butt shot, essentially. Like, that's what it is. And they've, like, perfectly designed her outfit to just give you, like, every idea of what she looks like underneath it. Which I understand, like, there's one thing I have issues with that in games like that and it's also what something in halo with cortana but basically there's the idea that they have the agency to choose to dress like that and that they choose to use their sexuality because miranda definitely does use her sexuality to her advantage she is the perfect human despite her australian accent um <laughs> but basically there's this idea that because the character chose to do it it's not sexist or it's not like problematic but then you've got to think beyond that is that the character doesn't actually have any choice the character is someone created by somebody else who has made these choices for them cortana is designed by a lot of dudes who decide to make her naked and then later on gave the reason for why she's naked because you know something about her being an ai and blah blah um with miranda like they decided to make a super hot lady because apparently mass effect needed one and whatever and then later on it becomes that oh because she's perfectly created and she uses her sexuality to her power she is strong because of it and it's like in theory these ideas are cool in theory everyone can be what they want they can be a woman can be sexually powerful um if she chooses but when you look at video games like this when it happens so often and it's usually male creators making this choice for the character. Then you've got to look at it a bit more. And that's like I love Miranda so much, but I also recognize that there's so much problematic stuff about her that I'm kinda like I hold her at arm's length somewhat.
0: And there's that discussion of whether do you do you like your own protagonist too? Like I I became so connected to Shepherd because it was very easy for me to fit into that role of like I'm used to playing games where you're military characters, and that, that's just scratching the surface of why I identified with her, but it was very easy for me to identify with her. Um, there was some sort of rumors, and I don't know if they're confirmed or if it's just rumor, but um, regarding Mass Effect Andromeda, and this is sort of Mass Effect Andromeda spoilers. If you don't want to hear anything at all about what may or may not be happening in the next game, this is your, your chance to to step out. But... Um, there's a, a plot summary going around that says you play as a, a human who is colonizing another galaxy which has native species there already which do not want to be colonized. And while I think that that could be a choice of a poor choice of words, um, the game might not itself be imperialist. It might, um, but it might not. My question that Rose from that is what if I am playing a character in such a rich universe that I fundamentally disagree with, and that's um, part of why I never got into Dragon Age, actually, because I wasn't really happy with either of the the mage or chantry choices that were presented to you. Neither of them really matched uh-huh. up with my like personal philosophy. Yeah. But um, what sort of difficulty do do you Saf? Do you think you would? Um, this would present a difficulty if you were playing a character who was doing something, say, colonizing a completely innocent galaxy, you know, to, to be vastly, um, to vastly, uh, oh gosh, what's the word? The whole galaxy is not innocent. Moving on, what do you <laughs> think that you would uh, would be able to play a character you disagree with? I have such
1: mixed feelings on that because I have played two different Shepherds. I have two Shepherds. I have Emma, who is my main shepherd, because... I love her so much. And I connect to her very much so. Um, and I also my second shepherd called Ace, who is awful. She's an awful person. It was basically my experimentation of how many people I could kill in the game of my squad mates and how ruined I could make the galaxy by the end of the game, the third game. Okay. Um, turns out you can kill basically everyone. Also turns out you can save Morden in Mass Effect 3, which I did do. So Morden's the only one alive. Um, and I fundamentally hate her as a person. She's awful. The worst person ever because she makes these choices. And... It's also kind of fun to play that once you get over the like because I have that problem that I can't be mean to a fictional character. Like I say something mean to, me to Liara, I'm like I'm so sorry, I love you, don't be mad. Um, but once you get past that, it takes a little while, but it it gets really interesting to make those choices and to watch how it plays out. And so I'm kind of torn. Like if you are playing a character that colonizes the galaxy, I kind of hope it would be interesting if they had like the Paragon choices were the ones where you are pure, like you're pro colonization and the Renegade choices were more towards like the not wanting to do it, but it's kind of your job thing. Cause I would definitely be pushed more into the Renegade side, which is something I don't normally play. And that would be a really interesting dynamic to play with and actually think about what you're doing a bit more than just being like, Oh, that's Paragon. That's a good choice. Obviously I'll just keep clicking the blue one, um, which is kind of what I did the first time I played Mass Effect. And, I would find that super interesting to have to make those choices actively and think about what you're doing and which side you actually want to be on. But on the other hand, I don't want to. I don't want like the protagonist of such a big game to be a colonizer unless they're going to make an active choice to make the theme being like this is wrong. Humans should not colonize things. Like don't be colonists because it ended very badly for so many people in the real world kind of thing. And I don't know. I'm so torn on it. Because on one hand, it could be really compelling storytelling, but if they handle it wrong, it's going to make me dislike the character I'm playing so much. And to a point, that can be interesting, but also when you don't make the choice to be playing a character you dislike that much, it's less fun.
0: That kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Undertale, too, with where the game, if the game is trying to teach you a moral lesson, which I mean a lot of games are, and that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, but if it's trying to point you in a certain direction, you as the player are going to be trying to outthink it. And maybe in the beginning, your paragon choices will be in favor of your military, whoever your player character is working for. And then as the game goes on, the value of those choices will change.
1: Yeah. And I am super interested in that, like narratively, especially game narrative wise. Like I'd be interested to see how they would, approach that not just with like dialogue and stuff but with like the choices of your characters and and like the world building and stuff that goes around it like it would be super interesting to see if they could do this properly but i am also kind of scared about it because colonization is a very touchy subject in a lot of cases especially when if like they um promote the main character as like a white character as well that's going to have some issues too
0: there have been some games that do a really good job of sort of deconstructing the whole shooter genre but of all the things that Bioware can do I don't know if deconstructing anything is what they are good at or or should do they're so good at making these really sincere worlds but then like in my sort of part of the reason I never got into Dragon Age is if you don't if you can't really get in the head of the character and align yourself with what their moral choices are, it's going to make it harder to connect with them.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of why I had trouble getting into um, Dragon Age 2 to begin with a lot, is because Hawk kind of has very. They kind of have a set characterization, like to a point, like you can kind of choose if, you know, they're witty and sarcastic, or if they're a more diplomatic and calm character, or if they're really angry and aggressive, but they still have. A voice as a character and it can be kind of hard to get into that sometimes if you've just come from origins which is like a completely open player character you can do whatever you want like their personality is totally open and it's kind of jarring and i definitely like i love dragon age in the way that i absolutely hate the games so much but i love the story and the characters enough that i will play them (laughs) um whereas mass effect i love everything about it so dragon age is a bit different for me and i can see how a lot of people cannot get into it because it's hard to get into and I think that's the problem is that where they kind of went wrong with Inquisition is that they tried to make it a bit more open for everyone who couldn't get into the first two games which I kind of understand but it sort of lost its Dragon Age charm in the way that it became very accessible like I'm not saying accessible games are bad but I think the things that were so good about Dragon Age Origins and Dragon Age 2 and the things that people liked so much were the things that made them a bit harder to get into.
0: My, like, relationship with Dragon Age is kind of complicated, but basically I had trouble because I felt that both the mages... So it's the mages and the chantry that you're kind of choosing between, The mages and the Templars, yeah. I felt that neither of them were making especially good choices and that, like, in order to have... I wanted to have a group, a political group, a religious group that I could fight in favor of in the game, like wasn't really letting me do that. It was only letting me exist in opposition to something. Oh, was it Dragon Age 2? Probably one, actually, because I've only played the first one. And then I sort of kept up with the others just because a lot of my friends played them. But I'm saying this from a place of not a lot of experience, really. I've I've played probably half the first one. But I had trouble sort of allying myself with any of the perspectives in them. And that might be entirely personal, the writing... It's iris- ir, um, irrespective of the writing, but I I couldn't put myself in the character's shoes so much.
1: That's definitely a thing. Um, It's very binary, which is kind of an issue because um, I, I mean, I'm pro mages because I played a mage in the first game and also because my roommate at uni, when I was playing Dragon Age, she was playing it at the same time as me and she was very pro Templar. And so we spent a lot of time arguing about it between each other and it kind of solidified our <laughs> positions a little bit. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's very binary. There's no in-between. Like, obviously not all Templars are bad. Obviously not all Mages are good. Like, there's there needs to be middle ground, but none of the games make the effort to reach that middle ground. And Inquisition had the chance to unite both sides, but they still gave you the binary choice between whether you want Mages or whether you want Templars, and which side you're going to work with, kind of thing. And that's one of my issues with Inquisition as well, is it never gave you the chance for that resolution. And that might come in the next game, maybe. I'm not sure. I have no clue what they're going to do with the next game. But it's It's kind of frustrating. I get that they kind of want the whole good versus evil thing, but there's no good or evil on either side. Um, I agree that, like, the Chantry has issues and the Templars have issues, but also, like, mages have issues too. Everyone does. Like, that's kind of the problem with games (laughs) like this. It's like in in Mass Effect, you've got, like, the good side, you've got, you know, Shepard's side, and you've got the Reaper's side. And it's very binary and easy to figure out. Yeah, the Reapers are bad. They're not good. Um, But Dragon Age kind of does that with the Mages and Templars and doesn't quite connect. Like, in Dragon Age 2, People will, I don't like Fenris because he's very anti-mage, super anti-mage, and I can't connect with that personally. Um, a lot of people don't like Anders because he's super pro-mage and he hates the Templars like with a passion. Um, And that kind of, it's interesting as well, like it's good in a way to have these characters with such strong opinions so that you can like either, you can build your opinions off of that and they're like real people with real personalities, but on the other hand, like you don't get that in between and it's hard to do like even in real world like you have a friend like I don't know you have a friend that hates dogs and you love dogs but you can still connect somehow there's some connection in there but the game doesn't give you that in the same way
0: I think that definitely sums up part of why I had trouble getting into it and that's not to say that a world in which you have two religions essentially both of which have good and bad to them like that's arguably more realistic and more um uh Sort of, there's more to explore there than there is in the world of Mass Effect, which is essentially a human military that can do no wrong versus a <laughs> faceless alien enemy, which is incredibly problematic in a lot of ways. Um, that's not to say that the Dragon Age world is less realistic. It was just harder for me as a gamer to sort of feel like I belonged in any one of the factions because they were all doing unpleasant things. Yeah.
1: Though I admit, one thing I do like about Bioware things is the characters like having strong opinions. Like apart from that, like I talked about Fenris and Anders and how they've got such strong opinions and it's really hard to make them both like you at once. And I, I'd never do it. But um, like in Mass Effect as well, you get characters that you may or may not disagree with. Like a lot of people really don't like Ashley from the first game. Like she's she's very strong in certain ways. She's religious, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does kind of translate into her xenophobia against aliens um and but like if you get beyond that like she loves poetry she loves her family and she only she's only anti aliens because she's seen what happened with the turians like to begin with and she hasn't had experience beyond that because she's been on earth um and so like having that kind of that strong characterization and the problem is that in games we as players are often not used to our teammates disagreeing with us which kind of came to a thing in Horror, Horizon and Mass Effect 2 when you find, you know, Ashley or Caden. They find you on Horizon. They're like, oh my god, you're alive kind of thing. And then they will, no matter what you say, they will disagree with what you're doing and leave. And, like, you're left with this bitter taste in your mouth because this person that, you know, you you fought with, they were on your team, they were your squad mate, and then they decided they didn't want to be with you. Like, they wanted to leave and not be part of your team. They didn't agree with what you are doing. And that's really jarring as a player because often you're told, you're doing the right thing. You're right, you're in the right, all of your characters love you kind of thing. And Mass Effect and Bioware in general don't entirely do that they create characters that have these personalities like like um like Tali who's like a tech person who hates the geth and like she she's very pro um like you can eventually get her to warm up to the geth but to begin with she's got that personality and if you clash with it she won't like you as much and I always find that really interesting in Bioware games because you don't really experience that anywhere else in the same way
0: So it's funny that you say that because one of the things that I really like about Mass Effect and also one of the things that makes me a little uncomfortable about Mass Effect is how much you're, like, flattered by that game. Like, (laughs) so many characters will say, like, Shepard, you're our hero. And, like, you're the best. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I am the best. But then, (laughs) but, like, it's this weird they're drawing you in by flattering you. And sometimes I think players get turned off when characters have their own lives beyond... Shepherd, which I mean, I myself have had problems with in the past, and <laughs> um, or when characters forcibly disagree with you, and in a scene like Horizon, where where they're scripted to, they have to leave. It's very jarring because you're not used to it.
1: Yeah, especially in something like Mass Effect. Like also in Mass Effect Two, like if you romance or actually in the first game, then you romance someone else in the second game, and then in Mass Effect Three, they'll accuse you of cheating on them, basically, and like. As a player, you're like, well, I mean, I was dead and we had a fight and, like, it seemed like we were pretty broken up kind of thing. But also to their side, like, you never had that conversation. Like, you were dead, yeah, but, like, they still loved you kind of thing. And it's one of those things where, like, you as a player, you're like, no, but I'm right. Like, I'm obviously right. And then this character on the other side, like, is their own human being. Like, they may not be controlled by a human, but they're still their own person. And they've got these feelings that you've got to take into consideration that you often don't have to because often the characters, yeah, they will revolve around you in a way. They'll be like, oh, you're amazing. We'll listen to everything you say. And then you'll counter those points where they disagree with you very strongly and you're like, huh, okay, okay. But a lot of people react very violently to that, like there's people who hate Ashley and Caden because, you know, in the first game they aren't the most compelling of characters because they're not aliens, basically. And then in the <laughs> second game they argue with you on Horizon and in the third game they come in as like, still being iffy about you because, you know, you were part of Cerberus and all of that, which is understandable if you go into their characterization and actually think about it. But as the player at the time, like, I was so mad at Ashley all the way through the second game and the third third game until she started, like, warming up to me again. I was so mad. I was like, Ashley, we were friends. What happened? And it was only when I looked at it later on that I was like, okay, I understand why she acted like this now. But at the time, I was so angry.
0: So we've talked about sort of things that we tend to dislike in Bioware games how about favorite things like what are your one or two favorite writing character moments in uh Mass Effect
1: oh that's so hard um <laughs> I really like Vermeer in Mass Effect 1 I love Vermeer so much like the entire mission is just amazing it's amazingly written it's amazingly animated the entire thing is just gorgeous and it sucks that it is like also the most heartbreaking moment essentially well not the most heartbreaking like if you don't like Ashley or Caden basically but essentially yeah you you can lose two squad mates through that mission and you learn about like what um I forgot his name what's the main villain Saren. Saren is doing somewhat and you kind of learn that he's more like a big antagonist because he's so like he actually actively harms you and your squad's squad in general um And it's just, it's such a good turning point in the game because you realize that your choices have severe consequences. Like, they could actually harm the people you care about and change basically the future of the game, like how it's going to look for you as a player. And I think it's just written so well. Like, when you have to make the choice, like, I I didn't realize it was a choice between two characters that, like, one would die and the other would live. I thought it was a choice between, like, basically, like, one of them's with a bomb and the other one's not with the bomb. And I was like, obviously, I have to go to the bomb because. I need to go to the bomb because Sarah will blow it up otherwise. But the choices I'd made before that meant that that Ashley was with the bomb. So I ended up killing Caden completely by accident. And the way it was written was just like the moment I made the choice, like it sunk in and I just had to pause the game and just step back from him because it was just done so well. Like you've got the character saying goodbye. You've got your own character like with the guilt being like, I'm sorry, I didn't want to make this choice. And it works really well, especially with the environment. It's like a tropical environment with like a storm brewing. And it's kind of, yeah, it's got those feelings of, like, something ominous is coming. And even though it's pretty, you've got that feeling of, like, this is awful. This is not good. Yeah.
0: That's an intense mission. And for some reason, so for some reason when you started talking about that, I was thinking not of that final choice that's so important with Kidan and Ashley, but of the Asari scientist that you meet in that building. Yeah. And Yeah. Is this the right mission? Yeah. Yeah. There's a scientist that you can choose to let her go. You can basically tell her I'm going to blow up this building. Um, You need to get out of here or you can kill her there. And she comes back in later games if you if you let her live. And that I think and all the things you just said too, really illustrates how much that mission escalates like the storm is coming in. You're the difficulty escalates, the choices you have to make escalate, and the Asari is just like a little preview of what's coming next. And it it really builds nicely. Yeah,
1: and you've also got um, the confrontation between Rex, when Rex is like, because he's the whole thing with the Genophage as well, which I can't remember exactly the relevance. I think the Genophage is like being experimented on, on that, on that island or something. Um, but Basically, Rex confronts you, and if you make the wrong choices... Like, he's very anti-genophage, obviously. Like, he wants anything to fix a genophage, and anything that would make it worse is not good. Because, you know, he's a Krogan, and he wants the Krogan to be happy and live long lives. Um, and if you make the wrong choices, basically, Ashley will step in and will kill Rex. You can't stop her from doing that if you have made the wrong choices. If you don't have enough Renegade or Paragon or whatever to talk him down, he will die. And... It's so tough. It's so tough. And, like, I didn't realize that he could die at that point. I had enough Paragon because I'd pumped all of my (laughs) points into Paragon. (laughs) I didn't either the first time. Yeah, so he survived for me. But, like, the fact that you've got this character, like, like, it goes again with their strong personalities and they will disagree with you. You've got Rex disagreeing with your choices and you've got to figure out a way to talk to him about it because if you don't then ashley with her own personality like she's terrified he's a krogan super tough he could step in and he could kill you instantly like you wouldn't stand a chance and so ashley steps in and kills him and it's just it's such a jarring moment because at that point you have no control
0: i think i i lost him my first time around i played mass effect a little out of order because i played like half of the first one again (laughs) i play half of the first thing of game and then um put it aside for a while and then played the second one and adored it and then went back and actually did the first. So I think my original, original Mass Effect playthrough, I lost Rex. By the time I went through the second time, I knew what I needed to do. But that was that was such a good one.
1: Yeah. So wait, what about you? What's your favorite writing moment?
0: Well, I have two. And so um, the very first scene of Mass Effect 2 is still possibly my favorite thing in any video game ever, because um, it really throws you into the shoes of that character. And it like Shepard literally dies at the end, but at the beginning, that's the first scene, and um, you lose the Normandy, and you practically lose members of your crew. And I thought that that was really intense. I could really identify with Shepard's like urge to protect what she had and she has that little argument with joker where he wants to stay with the ship i thought that was really well done and just that scene like got me hooked to Shepard so much
1: i love strong like strong openings in games are potentially my favorite thing about games ever and mass effect 2's opening is amazing like every part of it like the colors the writing like that moment of silence Yeah, it's beautiful that, that moment of silence when you're like standing in where the galaxy map used to be and like you look up and Mm -hmm. like there's no sound because you're in space and you can like see the stars like oh it's gorgeous
0: yeah and the music is so good the music in the like first 30 minutes of mass effect 2 is so good
1: it's such a good opening and yeah i agree that's probably one of my favorite moments as well
0: so there's that moment and then there is um so mass effect 3 is a slog. Like, Mass Effect 3 is a sad, sad game. But um, one of my favorite parts is also one of the saddest parts, which is the Ardot Yakshi Monastery, where you go to find Samara's daughters. And I had not been about Samara. I was a little turned off by the Asaris. Sort of the same thing we talked about with Miranda. I felt they were very much female characters written for a male audience. And um, some of them... I really appreciate now more than I did before but I wasn't super attached and then you get there and you see um that monastery is the first time you see like purely Asari culture they're not there interacting with humans they're not interacting with anyone else they're just dealing with their own stuff and it's a great little mission because it shows it's basically a boarding school and it shows like all the just day-to-day things that these people get up to but also they're essentially space vampires and it's got this sort of twisted ending where you have to attempt to save them from themselves and I really every time I love that mission more
1: yeah that's one of like the strongest missions of Mass Effect 3 I think I just, it's got the isn't like the elements of horror in it because you've got like this growing sense of something has gone wrong very very wrong and you've got the screams of the banshees the entire mission is just it's amazing I love it I hate it because I'm terrified the entire time I am such a wuss when I play games but Cause also because I love the Asari, like, seeing how they lived, especially how the, not, yeah, the actually live, um back before the Reapers invaded and how they were treated, like, gives you kind of more of a sense on Morinth and Mass Effect 2 as well, because she was an Arta that chose to become, like, a murderess and, like, go and kill people and use her powers instead of, you know, chilling out at the monastery with her two sisters. And so it gives you a bit more insight on her choices and Samara's choices and, also like it's just it's gorgeous as well like the environments in all the mass effect games are just so good
0: they are they're so memorable the way they use color and like they're just they're just so good yeah (laughs) so anything else that you want to add about mass effect not that i can think of i think so that's a big topic, and we're probably going to talk about it again. I know we mentioned having some guests on to talk about Mass Effect, and we definitely want to have other fans on to talk about more specific things, but I wanted to make sure to talk about the writing, because that was always what drew me to Bioware, so I know we went a little bit long, but um, thank you for listening, and we, Saf, where can people find you online? You can find
1: me on Twitter at Wanderlustin, W-A-N-D-E-R-L-U-S-T-A-N. And you can also find me on my personal blog, which is notsafwork.com.
0: Cool. And I can be found on Twitter at blog full of words. I have a story out on StarWars.com today about race Um It's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm pretty excited. So you'll see that um, if you want to check that out. So thanks, guys. And don't forget to check the Western Reaches. Alert. I'm detecting covenant movement.